0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you. My name is Sid. I'm the pastor of community groups here, uh, if I don't know you, and it's my pleasure and privilege to open God's Word with you and look at it together this morning, and we're going to continue in a sermon series that we've been doing since uh, the beginning of the fall, really the end of the summer, and it's a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and the title of our sermon series is called The One True King, The One True King, and so Would you go with me to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 19 there. You can uh, turn in a paper Bible, you can look at your bulletin, look behind me, you can flip in a phone. There's lots of ways to get to this one. So choose your own adventure on that one, and let's look at Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he, Jesus, went up the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Frenzies are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, all of us have entered into this room in space um, coming from different places, Uh, whether that's physical or spiritual uh, or even just emotional um, or mental, I just pray that you'd meet us where we are. Uh, Would you come to us? Would you come to us, Jesus, once again? And would you remind us of of what you would have for us? Uh, Most of all, would you remind us of who you are? And would you, in all of your glory and all of your truth and all of your love, be lifted up? Would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, as a result of looking at your word together and spending some time trying to soak you in, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, several hundred years ago, uh, a man who was much distressed and really very busy, this man journeyed into the desert and he, the desert of North Africa to a specific cave. I guess this is what you did several hundred years ago when you were distressed, you went to a cave in the desert. And there he met the desert father of the early Christian church. It's a wise old hermit who lived by himself in a cave. And when this younger man arrived, he immediately began to just let it all out. He kind of backed up the truck and he dumped all of his heavy problems at the feet of this older wise hermit his frustrations with prayer and Bible reading, his many flawed attempts to be good, the responsibilities and politics at work, the ways in which the relationships that he had felt failing or failed, uh, the many ways his children, his wife, his neighbors, even his friends, all these folks felt like they demanded so much and he felt like he had so little to offer. And then he kept talking and talking and the whole time this old, wise old hermit, just listened. Listened as he described the struggles and the disappointment with strong and sometimes scary even emotions as he tried to describe what it felt like to be good. And then when the talking finally sputtered to a stop, the old man, the desert father, without a word, got up and went to the back of the cave, just shuffled to the back of the cave. And then he kind of rooted around in the back and he Shuffled back to the front of the cave, carrying two things, a pitcher and a basin. And what he did, just a pitcher and a bowl, really, think of it that way. And the desert father said this Now lean over and watch as I pour this water into the basin, and I want you to look and tell me what you see. And so the water splashed down from the pitcher into the the bowl, the bottom of the bowl, and the sides of the bowl, and The water was stirred up. It was bubbling and frothing around the sides. It was sort of, there's a fast moving ripples of water as it kind of coursed around. Um, And then those kind of fast moving ripples slowed into sloshing waves that went back and forth over the course of the bowl. Until finally, gradually, the water's surface calmed and became completely still. And it settled so much that when the young man looked down at the water he could see his face reflected back to him clearly. And after a long pause, the Desert Father said this, This is the way way it is when you live constantly in the midst of others. The waters get stirred up by confusion and disturbances, and you do not see yourself as you really are. You fail to recognize the divine presence in your life and the awareness of your belovedness slowly fades from you. And there's a part of us, if if we're honest, that when we hear this story immediately objects, easy for you to say, you're a monk who lives in the desert by yourself. But, and I, and I want to say quickly that there is a real benefit that we could all use, you and me, about times of intentional solitude and um, times where we don't mistake solitude for loneliness. We don't mistake solitude for isolation. But we could all benefit from times where we just are being with and not performing for God. And we'll talk more about that later. But I really don't want us to miss the point of what I think the story is trying to get at What the Desert Father is showing us is this. Other people can stir us up. Other people can stir us up. Other people's personal demands and social expectations, their judgments, their exclusions, their hard-to-fix heartaches and harder-to-predict reactions, all of these things can stir my heart up. What my head and my heart starts to bubble and froth And it's filled to the brim with swirling thoughts and emotions, and suddenly I can't see myself or others or God clearly at all. And we feel that sometimes, don't we? We feel that, and so we naturally kind of want to do something about that feeling that we sometimes get when we get stirred up. And so we want to, in the middle of a conversation, we start to feel that, and we want to say or do something differently to change the course of that conversation. Or maybe after the fact we're still feeling that from a conversation and we make a vow that we're gonna change the social script to say or do something differently the next time. Or we can kind of silently, quietly reach to the back of our heart for an off switch, turn it off and all of a sudden uh, I'm not here, this isn't happening, not seeing this. Or some of us simply turn the volume up in our lives and we just get really busy get busy with a schedule or, not, or purposely not having a schedule so that we can avoid people who might potentially stir us up. And with time and these efforts, some of us have lost touch with our heart's waterline. While others of us, as we kind of press in to self-knowledge, have recognized that I feel um, so much sloshing of water in my heart. And I have to confess, a lot of times in the midst of feeling the, the slosh of water in my heart, I can make it worse. I can grab the jug of my heart and just start shaking. And all of a sudden, I've turned slow, sloshing waves into a frothing, bubbling mess, full tilt bubbles and everything. And really, like it's important to take this story about the basin in um, this image of the basin, and, and put it next to the story that we just read earlier in Mark chapter 3. There is Jesus, and he's hard pressed on every side by a demanding crowd. There he is, trying to shush the unclean spirits who come screaming out of hurting people like Roman candle fireworks. There he is, Jesus having to climb up a mountainside just to get the space so that he can call a conversation with a few friends. But in the midst of so many others and these demands, the water of Jesus' heart quickly calms. And it calms so still that when these 12 people, these 12 disciples look at Jesus, they see themselves clearly reflected back with his love. And reading this many years later, we can say, the same thing. By his spirit, Jesus can touch our heart's water and the face rippling in that water. And he can give us peace. But how was Jesus' heart so calm in that moment? And and furthermore, I wanna know, how does being with Jesus actually calm my own heart down and enable me to help calm other people down? through his power. That's really the heartbeat of this passage this morning. In Mark chapter three, verses seven through 19, we see this. Jesus gives us an example of how to do relationships. And then in relationship with us, he enables us to see clearly and to give other people his peace. And our outline this morning just reflects that truth that Jesus is a model and a means to deeper healing. And first in the crowd, we see Jesus model something. He models how to be known and how to, be, how to know by all sorts of other people. And that's the first half of our passage. And in the second half of our passage, we see Jesus with the disciples and we see his friendship. His friendship that motivates a ministry that stills stormy hearts. And really, those are our two points this morning. We're going to look at Jesus as a model of relationships, and then we're going to look at Jesus as a motive for ministry. Those are the two things we're going to do this morning. And that outline is in your bulletin projected behind me. Um, If you're a note ninja, you can use those things. So let's keep moving, and I'm going to look at verses 7 through 9. If you look at 7 through 9 with me, you see that they paint a picture, like a really vivid picture of what's going on in the scene. It's a crowd. It's a crowd of so many who are demanding so much. We read this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. And they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And Aaron talked about this in his sermon last week, and he kind of detailed how the religious establishment has sort of systemically and systematically kind of uh, rejected Jesus in his ministry. But what's so interesting is while that's happening, the crowd just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? It doesn't stop crowds upon crowds of people. In fact, the rumor of what Jesus has done has become is just only spreading. And we read the geography really from Galilee to Judea to Jerusalem, Adamea and from beyond the Jordan and from all around Tyre and Sidon in verses seven through eight. And basically all that means is that individuals and families, friends and neighbors are coming from all over the place to the Northwest, far to the Northwest, far to the South, far to the East, and far far to all these different four cardinal directions, all coming straight to Jesus in this small town. And they're coming with their healthy to see what the hoopla is about. And if they're, coming, if they're sick, they're coming to get healed. They're hoping to get to touch Jesus on the skin and receive healing. They've heard of this man from Nazareth, and they've heard that he's performed more miracles than have been done since the times of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. And so the first takeaway for us is this when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, is relating well means understanding others. Relating well means understanding others. And we see here that Jesus intimately understands us. He gets what it feels like to be pressed upon and to be pressed upon in such a way that our hearts get stirred up. Look at the way that Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, summarizes scenes like this in the life of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus felt the demands. He feels the same demands and expectations, the same judgments and exclusions, the same hard to fix heartaches and harder to predict reactions that we do and then some. And like us, his heart's waterline gets stirred up, he's tempted. He's tempted to believe what the crowd says about him. He's tempted to do what the crowd wants him to do, to line up that crowd single file and heal everybody as long as it takes. He's tempted to do these things so that he can be powerful, he can be relevant, he can be popular, he can be famous. Matthew Perry, uh, the actor who played Chandler Bing on the TV show Friends, he died recently. It's been kind of all over the media, his death, but also lots of articles have been written about his life, in particular about, um, because he's written this book recently, a memoir about his life that's really honest. It's called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And in many of these articles that have kind of honored Matthew Perry's life, they've really addressed the big terrible thing in that title. Because Matthew Perry, in his own words, he names the big terrible thing that because it's his addiction, his addiction to alcohol and drugs. In one article, Patty Davis, who um, is the daughter of Ronald Reagan, former president Ronald Reagan, and uh, also as an addict, shares about her struggle with addiction and also reflects on the heart of Matthew Perry's addiction too. Here's what she says, I want to tell you something about addiction. No matter who it is or what substance that person is hooked on, loneliness is at its root. Nobody wanted to be more famous than me, Mr. Perry said at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books in April. But he added, fame does not do what you think it's going to do. And Patty Davis writes, I remember hearing him say that and thinking, right fame doesn't penetrate the loneliness. Jesus felt this all too human feeling of loneliness and he felt the pressure that we feel, a heart sloshing and bubbling, to fulfill people's demands or even maybe distill the waters inside of us with food or drink or something stronger. But Hebrews chapter 4.15 adds, as quick to add, Jesus felt all these things He was tempted in all these directions that he was without sin. And that is he chose to lean into knowing others even as he was not fully known. Even as this crowd of human beings and unclean spirits didn't get him and what he was about. Because you see, Jesus chose to relate well, not just to understand us, but to heal us. And so relating well means also healing others. And that's giving, that means giving peace to people's insides and people's outsides as well. We see this in verses 10 through 11. Jesus is doing this. He's, healing them. He's healed the many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And so Jesus is giving peace to the people from, who are suffering from physical disease. He touches them and the skin that burns the joints and the the ligaments and the bones that throb, the organs that are swelling, all of that distress is gone. And then Jesus is giving people peace who suffer from spiritual captivity. Jesus speaks and people are set free from unclean spirits that can bind us in so many ways, but perhaps especially in addiction. We can be addicted to whatever bodily pleasure or personal performances we think will actually calm the water in our hearts or get rid of this lonely feeling underneath the surface. And Jesus says, that thing, that person no longer has to define you. Let me define you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And that ties into a last thought about how Jesus relates. Relating well is understanding others and it's healing others, but it's also disappointing others. And we, look, we see this as in more detail in verse 13 and following because Jesus clearly doesn't heal everybody gathered to be healed in this scene. And in fact, he separates himself from the crowd and, and the unclean spirits. He disappoints the expectations from all those people gathered from all over to be healed. And he rebukes personal demons even when they have the right answer about who he is. And so sometimes, like Jesus, we get to say yes and help heal others, and other times we say no and we disappoint other people. And this need to sometimes disappoint is set into our human limits. Even Jesus, we forget that he's his humanity, that he cannot do everything and be everywhere and and be everything to all people at the same time. And this begs a question for us in our own lives, when we feel the press of demand, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to listen to? It reminds me of what I do most of my weekends these days. Um, uh, Most of my weekends, I stand on a youth soccer sideline. (laughs) This might not be your life, okay, this might be your life. Uh, If it is your life, welcome. If it's not your life, then remember those times when it was your life and you were on the field. Anyway, um, the parents on the sideline, if you might remember this or you're in this, are constantly yelling at the players, right? By name to do various things on the field, right? My personal favorite is go after the ball. That's my favorite. If you're gonna yell something, go after the ball is a good one. Or pass, shoot, run, another good one, run. Um, And I I played soccer and coached soccer for 26 years, my first 26 years of my life. And so let me just tell you a secret. This is a really important secret. Most of those parents have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) They just don't. They have no idea. And often the ones yelling the loudest know the least about the game of soccer. (laughs) Life's like that, isn't it? Isn't life like that? Especially when a crowd of opinions gets going. And so we need to be careful to ask two questions. Who am I listening to and why? And then also, am I willing to disappoint some of those voices I'm hearing? Just like Jesus disappointed the whimpering voices in the crowd and the screeching voices of spirits. And just like Jesus is the theme of verses 13 through 19, and you see kind of in this fit of Old Testament symbolism, Jesus hikes up a mountainside and he reenacts Moses and the exodus scene on Mount Sinai, and he calls by name, this time 12 individuals instead of 12 tribes of Israel, and he starts a new nation of the people of God. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, verses 14 through 15 in other words, Jesus says to these 12 and anyone who follows him afterwards, many people like us, this is what Jesus says, do what I do, do what I do. Um, But thankfully, um, this kind of brings us to a question. Maybe you've heard that sermon before, do what I do. And I just wanna ask a question that I think is an honest question. How do we begin to do that? How do we begin to do what God incarnate did? And how do we begin to even want to do that? what God did. Thankfully, Jesus is more than a good example. He gives us the desire and the ability to share his peace, a peace which calms hearts and lets us see ourselves and others and God more clearly. And that's our second and final point this morning, right? You see this in these verses, and I'm gonna take a, a, a deeper, bigger risk, okay? And I'm gonna get even more specific than the average sermon. I just wanna, I'm gonna say practically speaking, what does this look like? How does Jesus actually do this? How does Jesus begin to give us the motivation and the power to spread his healing peace? Answer, Jesus gives it to us in and through a deep friendship with us. Isn't that amazing? He gives it to us in relationship. Notice what's happening here in verse 13. Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Don't skip over that. He called to those whom he desired. Of the many voices calling out to us in our lives, Jesus' voice is one of them, and Jesus is calling to us. And if we listen to that voice, we'll hear Jesus calling you out of a desire to be with you and he's calling you by name. Look at those two points, then we'll be done. Out of deep personal friendship, Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Why? So that they might be with him. Before Jesus wants us to do anything, whether it's a text or listen to a podcast or preaching or casting out spiritual shame and fear, before any of that, Jesus just wants to be with you. He wants to be with you as a human being, as you are right here, right now, no matter what you did last night, no matter what you're thinking about instead of the sermon right now. He wants to be with you, that person, that guy, that girl. How? How in the world is that true? Here's how. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died on a cross for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We struggle to believe this, don't we, right? I'm professionally religious, and I struggle to believe this. And whether you're a Christian and you call yourself that or whether you wouldn't feel comfortable with that, it can feel impossible to believe that God would really desire to be with me. In so many ways, every day, it's a call to leave the Charlotte crowd and come and just be with Jesus. But what does that look like just to be with God? To I love the words of Brendan Manning here, to conscientiously waste time with God. To conscientiously waste time with God. What does that look like? Well, let me give you a metaphor, surprise. It looks a lot like being... With your best friend, (laughs) you know that friend that you've known for several years, as long as you can remember, maybe, who actually likes you. That's what it's like to be with God. You don't like. Just think about that relationship. You don't feel like you have to fill up the space talking. You don't feel. You don't feel like you have to fill up the space talking about him or talking to him even. You don't feel like you can just be in his presence right? And sometimes being in his presence looks like talking to him or listening to him face to face. But also, it looks like feeling free. Free to just be with him side by side. Checking your email, going to the gym, listening to a favorite song, or even just feeling out the silence between the two of you. And it's out of this experience, this peace with God, that we share others. We share this peace with others out of our experience of that peace. We share this healing. And this is what uh, Frederick Barbie and Paul Zoll call a glorious hope. And here are the glorious hope. The glorious hope is this, to be able to move out from judgment and unremitting demands as the motivational engine of my life and I get to move into a merciful deliverance granted by virtue of another's action on a cross. What does that mean? Out of God's love for us in Jesus, we are free. We are free, first and foremost, just to be. But Jesus knows that is just really hard to take in. He knows this, and this is, he says—it's hard to believe for you and for me personally. And so what does Jesus do next in the passage? He calls you and me by name, even a nickname. A good nickname, one that we actually like and respond to, a good nickname, is often proof of friendship, isn't it? It shows that we belong and that we're enjoyed in this space. Um, I remember getting a nickname. I remember I walked onto a soccer team that was, felt like it was way over my level. And I was just kind of happy to be there, but I didn't really finally make the team in the team's mind. I knew I'd made it when they, started, they stopped using the name Sid, and they started using the name Sid Vicious, and then Vicious, and then Vish. I was just called Vish for two years. That's, that was what I responded to. That's what they called me. And, and really, like, versus, that, and really, like, if you know me at all, that nickname is both funny and also really deep in a way. And that's what I kind of want to show you in this this list of names in verses 16 through 19. It's full of nicknames that Jesus gave that are like that, right? These names for the 12 disciples are funny, right? They show he spent a lot of downtime with these guys. He's been between things with them. And we don't picture Jesus like that, being with them side by side. But it also shows that Jesus has been with them face to face. He knows them down to the bottom all the way down, you could say in a way that Jesus has seen them as they are, reflected back in the still waters of his heart. For instance, Jesus calls James and John the sons of thunder, which might be the best title in all the Bible, uh, professional wrestling. Anyway, but it's because they have tempers. Isn't that funny? Because calls them sons of thunder because they have tempers. You can just imagine that playfulness. And then Jesus is not just having fun, though. He's also seriously getting to push at who people truly are. And we see this with Simon's nickname. Simon is nicknamed Peter, which literally means the rock. And this is funny because Peter in, the, in Mark's gospel is all over the place. He's up and then he's down. He's right, then he's wrong. He's full of pride, then he's full of despair. He's anything, he acts anything, like, anything but like a secure or stable rock. In fact, he acts most of the time like shifting sand. But what's so interesting is that Jesus names Simon Peter because he really knows him. He really knows him. And by Jesus' friendship to Simon, even when he's at his worst, denying that he even knows Jesus three times, in Jesus, Simon is going to become Peter. He's going to become a rock of faith. He's going to be a source of stability for an early church that is all over the place. And it's this posture of unconditional friendship that truly changes us. Deep friendship with Jesus and deep friendship with his funny, deep water friends called church. These friendships heal us. They have authority to share Jesus' healing in the most unlikely of places. I'd like to go to one of those to end. In his book, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, Matthew Perry tells the story of bottoming out after taking eight Xanax pills at one time. I frantically began to pray with the desperation of a drowning man. God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you're you're here. God, please help me. And as I prayed, the little wave in the air transformed into a small golden light. And as I kneeled, the light slowly began to get bigger and bigger until it was so big that it encompassed the entire room. It was like I was standing on the sun. I had stepped on the surface of the sun. What was happening? Why was I starting to feel better? Why was I not terrified? The light engendered a feeling more perfect than the most perfect quantity of drugs I'd ever taken. And for the first time in my life, I was in the presence of love and acceptance and filled with an overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay. I knew now that my prayer had been answered. I was in the presence of God. And this experience changed Matthew Perry's life. In an interview afterwards, Matthew Perry said this, the best thing about me, bar none, the best thing about me, better than being Chandler Bing on the hit TV show Friends, the best thing about me is that if somebody comes to me and says, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I can say yes and follow up and do it. And I love the way that Patty Davis responds to these words. He laid bare his wounds, his struggles, his complicated relationship with drugs and alcohol. That's the best we can do in life. Be truthful and hope those truths become lanterns for others as they wander through the dark. I love that image. Perhaps it's close to what Jesus is showing us in this passage. What does it look like to risk a prayer to the Jesus who desires you in your life? God, please help me. God, please help me to just be with you when my heart feels it gets sloshing and spiraling downward. Again, God, please help me to be with that other person, to step in and be with their pain. And whether it's in a stressful staff meeting, a doctor's visit or phone call, or a hard relationship, or in the middle of a behavior that just won't stop kicking, Jesus can calm that water in your heart. And he might just also ask you to be a lantern. A lantern for others as they wander through the dark too. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for these words to us, um, for your faction for us. And I pray that you would help us to rest in that today. Would you help us to, to reach um, out of that today towards others? And I pray that, um, trusting that you really do like us by your spirit, through your cross, in your name. Amen.